0: Hello, and welcome to the Participation and Performance podcast with me, Dr. Dan Brown. In this episode, I am joined by Professor Nanette Mutri from the University of Edinburgh in the United Kingdom. Nanette is a world-leading authority on the role that physical activity can play in health, having authored hundreds of papers and key texts in this area. In 2015, Nanette was awarded an MBE in the UK New Year's Honours List for services to physical activity for health. Nanette, it is clear from that very brief introduction that you've had a very significant impact on research and practicing physical activity during your esteemed career. Perhaps we could begin by discussing where it all started for you. Why were you first drawn to sport and exercise psychology?
1: Hello, Dan. It's lovely to be speaking with you today. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you for that. And. uh the question about how I got into sport and exercise psychology goes back some time, as you can imagine. I was originally a PE student and I taught physical education in schools for about two and a half years. I then joined the University of Glasgow sport and recreation team as a as a physical education expert and suddenly realized that a university environment offered me chances for further study. And so I went ahead and did a Master of Education. And I, I knew a lot of that stuff from my physical education um, background. But what interested me was all the psychology courses. I was very, very passionate about trying to get more women and girls involved in PE when I was a teacher and in sport and recreation uh, at the University of Glasgow. And I applied for a Fulbright scholarship encouraged very much by my boss who was Peter Radford at the, at the time he had just joined us a former Olympic sprinter and he had had some North American education and he encouraged me to think of doing a PhD and the best place to do this for me was at Penn State University where Professor Dorothy Harris who was very famous uh, for her advocacy of women's sport uh, was working um, and I first of all did not get the Fulbright scholarship but I was on the reserve list and then suddenly I was offered the chance to go and so off I went to Penn State University to study with Dorothy Harris and it turned out that actually her discipline was psychology and that's really how I got involved in that through the idea that she was a world leader in women in sport and that I would learn that from her, I accidentally then became a sport and exercise psychologist, and I've loved it ever since.
0: And did you find that uh, that participation levels for female young girls in in PE were were low in America as they were here in the UK?
1: Yes, you know, America has very many binary issues going on. At university and college level, we just had the introduction then of Title IX in the USA, which meant that every university and college had to offer the same level of programmes for girls and young women students as they did for men. So that gave huge opportunities. But the other side of that was in recreational life, Um, where we were used to having clubs or swimming pools easily accessible, there was very little of that in American towns. Um, And once girls and women had stopped playing at the college level, if they were lucky enough to get there, there was no real club structure beyond that. And I think that remains pretty much the case, although there are many, many more recreational opportunities in the States now. But that introduction of Title IX, Uh, meaning that in law, uh, colleges and universities had to provide the same resources, money, opportunities for the women students as the men students changed the playing field, (laughs) to use that pun correctly, uh, considerably.
0: So why was it that you started focusing on physical activity for health? Was that within your PhD?
1: Yes. uh, So an American PhD involves a lot of initial coursework which I found really really helpful you know I had to do courses in statistics uh, formal courses for credit with exams Um, statistics uh, um, was one of my favorite things it turned out I didn't realize I was going to like it but I did but also had to do Psychology courses with some of the great psychologists uh, in America at the time, the, the particular ones I remember were uh, called Sharif, and they had really famous uh, psychology courses going on, and, and we we were allowed to attend them, not only allowed, but we had to set all the exams for, for credit. So I began to be more interested in the psychology part, and then when it came to the point where you have to decide what you're going to study for your dissertation, um, my supervisor, Dorothy Harris, uh, and students will be horrified by this story, used to ask me to write uh, over the course of a week, two brief proposals for a thesis or a dissertation, two different ones every week for about a month. That was extremely difficult. But Dorothy had written a book called The Somatopsychic Rationale for Sport. And I really began to focus on that. And we will all know what the psychosomatic Meaning is that uh, when we have something that's affecting how we think and feel, then our body might react to that in a stressful way. So psychosomatic illnesses are well known. But what Dorothy was trying to do with her book was say what we do with our body affects how we think and feel. And this book was uh, 10 or 15 years old at the time, but she kept pulling me back to chapters of that for my uh, thesis ideas. And finally, I hit on the idea of mood and depression, and she suddenly went, yes, that's it. You really need to study that. It's so understudied. How does our body affect our mood and potential depression, and what we do with it, can physical activity possibly affect our mood and prevent depression? So that was the topic for my PhD, and so that was the big introduction, that somatopsychic rationale to to the world that followed, where not only mental health but physical health, of course, and the promotion of activity became my, my real interest.
0: Okay, and I guess in terms of some of the key key messages that have come from that, and and subsequently, why is it that it is important for us to increase our physical activities, physical activity levels, both on the individual level, but also societally? So perhaps in terms of our sort of uh, mental health, but also in terms of our physical health.
1: Sure, um, and this is now a big topic, and and I think I've spent most of my career trying to make this an important topic for governments for agencies such as health services for schools and to have it high in the agenda of priorities for resourcing because I fundamentally believe that increasing the physical activity levels of a population has wide-ranging well-being health uh, and societal benefits so at an individual level, now there is almost no dispute. you know, and twenty years ago, we didn't have the evidence we have now about the how physical activity improves almost every aspect of our physical health and prevents uh, well over twenty well-known chronic diseases the the most significant perhaps being uh, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and mental health. So that evidence now is very, very compelling and governments around the world have now taken uh, action on that, partly, partly because uh, in 2010 we had this Toronto Charter for Physical Activity for Health, which appealed to countries to write policies that would help promote physical activity for their populations. And that gathered together all the evidence and made it more important. So we've got some very good evidence of the health benefits of being active. And I think I would bring them down to individual health in terms of feeling uh, that you can function well in everyday life, in terms of feeling that you can have quality of life Because after all, we are, as human beings, built to move. And we're never better than when all of our systems are working together to help us move in a simple way, such as walking or doing the garden or riding our bike or going swimming then we've got all of our systems working together and this is part of the somatopsychic rationale that when we're working like that our physiology affects our psychology and we feel good and that is the essence of why I think it's important at an individual level and of course we can use the kind of uh, risk approach and say if you are not active you risk all of these Diseases that might come to you later in life, but I think it, we should much more focus on how we feel every day. If our bodies are moving and we are active, and that is feeling good, uh, keeping your mood at a good level, perhaps sleeping better and enjoying everyday quality of life. So that's where I focus for the individual level.
0: Why is it important on a on a, I guess on a more societal level on a turn of a government? Government level?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, governments should first and foremost be interested in the health and well being of the population that they're governing. So, having good health now clearly involves being physically active. And as I said, in the individual level, the evidence for that now is overwhelming and cannot really be disputed. If governments are interested in helping people stop smoking, they must be interested in helping people become physically active, because these things are almost equal in terms of the the disease level that they could potentially bring to a population. But beyond that, you know, governments pay for health costs. So at the economic level, if they reduce the risk of a lot of diseases, um, as, as we said in the individual level, well over 20 diseases have solid evidence that regular activity will prevent them. That's going to reduce their healthcare costs, whether you've got a system like we have in the UK of the national health system, or whether you have insurance led or private medicine system in other countries. But then I think even beyond that, when we promote an environment that supports everyday activity like walking or cycling, then it turns out that this is good for the well-being of the population also because we're now at the level of looking at physical activity as a means of reducing pollution and traffic congestion. So we now have examples of cities such as Oslo, who are removing all cars from the city centre. And again, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. People would not have thought that anyone would stop cars going into city centres. And it turns out that when we encourage public transport, when we encourage easy routes to cycle that are safe, and when we encourage... uh, Walking routes that are well lit on good pavements between destinations, bus stops, or train stations, etc. Then the footfall that is created through there creates an environment that people find is safe, and actually, people go and use shops more. uh, Because shopkeepers always felt if cars aren't coming in and out of the city centre, then we won't have people coming to use our. Mm Um, shops, But in fact, it, the footfall is better when people are in easy places that they don't have to park, they're walking, they're cycling, then people still use shops. So the environment of a town is improved when uh, governments take actions to make physical activity easy and safe, such as walking and cycling, keep their parks uh, green and keep them uh with easy access for people and keep them maintained, then that all brings um, a sense of well-being to a community and a, a happier population. But I think the big thing now for society is that there's a great deal of concern about the levels of pollution, pollution mostly generated by cars and vehicles, and that may in itself be the lever that creates more activity because people are very concerned to reduce that because they see immediate health concerns from it. And if we reduce that, we will almost inevitably move people towards walking, cycling and public transport that doesn't have these kind of emissions. So society has a lot to benefit from taking the physical activity message seriously and using all these different levers to create environments in which it's safe and easy to be as active as possible in everyday life.
0: You're involved in a lot of uh, collaborative research re- at the moment, um, all aimed at promoting physical activity, I guess drawing on a number of these environmental approaches um, that you're describing. mm mm-hmm. You had a recent study that you did looking to increase physical activity and reduce sedentary uh, behavior in European football fans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that study in particular? What was the kind of the rationale behind it? Uh, um, what did you go? What did you go on to do? And um, what were the findings that came from it?
1: Well, this European study started from a Scottish study um, one one of the ways of working that i 've always enjoyed in Scotland is collaboration with the Medical Research Council's unit in Glasgow for social and public health medicine, and that collaboration led me to be involved in a project with Scottish football fans or soccer, uh, for for other countries' uh, knowledge of which game that is. (laughs) Their concern, however, was obesity levels, and they were concerned that there were more overweight men in Scotland than women. They were concerned that men did not take up opportunities Uh, to help manage their weight, such as Weight Watchers or Slimming Worlds. These approaches were dominated by women. So they wanted to find a route into a more male environment and football was one such route. Fortunately for me, and hopefully for the project, they realised that food was one part of it, but activity was another part. And so the whole approach to the Scottish football fans in training, was to use an educational classroom-based approach over 12 weeks in which the men who were fans of their local football club and went to the club learned about good eating behaviour but also learned about being physically active in everyday life. And so what we promoted there was the use of a pedometer And a gradual increase in their steps over seven or eight weeks until they reached a level that would be recommended for weight loss, which is a bit more than the one hundred and fifty minutes a week for the public health message. It's two hundred and twenty-five up to three hundred minutes of activity a week is recommended for weight loss. So this is a gradual increase using a pedometer, they also did uh, football related skills and activities when they were at their weekly classroom session now that was a hugely um, successful program men lost weight, more than the recommended 5% over one year and we've completed now a 3 year follow up of that study and they have not returned to their previous uh, overweight condition, they've not just necessarily kept all of the weight loss but it has not gone back to baseline and that is a very difficult thing to achieve in weight loss and our study shows that the the walking the everyday walking and the step counts with the pedometer is a key issue in helping them maintain the weight loss that they achieved when they were doing the program. So the Scottish football fans in training, very successful because fans love going to their football club. They love being taught by the coaches of the football club who were then specially trained for this. They love being in the environment, wearing the kit. It was a highly motivational environment. And so we thought the idea here was to take it to Europe and, and we got European funding for this and we focused much more in the European studies on increasing physical activity and decreasing sedentary time. So here we had four countries involved, uh, Norway, Portugal, Netherlands and England, and a huge collaboration involving well over 700 men into the studies in the beginning, uh, again followed up for a year. Now it's not weight loss so much as physical activity and sitting less that was our key components, but we measured all the other things as well. And over the year, we did find that the men could increase their physical activity. We had much less success in helping them decrease their sedentary time. We managed that in the beginning, but it was not sustained. So I think we know how to help people increase physical activity by... Pedometer use by everyday actions such as walking more, Um, these were the key ingredients of the success of the physical activity part, but we don't know so much yet about how best to help people sit less and sustain that over time. But the other good news about the European fans' results was that they did lose weight. And we had in this study a, a number of biomarkers for cardiovascular disease and metabolic disease. They all improved with quite modest amounts of increase in physical activity, averaging around 10 minutes more a day, every day on average. That also improved biomarkers that will be important for prevention of future disease. And, of course, we found increased well-being reported in a variety of psychological skills, uh, not skills, but uh, tests, rather, and uh, increases in self-esteem, which we've seen with the Scottish football fans as well. So uh, wide-ranging and positive results. And the European football fans' work had a very special ingredient in it in that the grant allowed us to test implementation. Now, this is an important thing. When a research uh, study happens and you get some positive results, how do you spread that out? Uh, And that is either dissemination or implementation of an intervention. And the European funds allowed us to try that as part of the grant. So built into it, many more clubs in these countries are now trying the exact same intervention, but without the help of the research team. And so far, it is working. And a, a, a group who are responsible for healthy stadia, that's the name of the the group, are trying to promote stadias for sports events that do promote health in terms of food and activity, are managing that process of allowing clubs anywhere now to be trained in how to deliver the European football fans in training intervention that we've shown is effective At least for physical activity and positive health, and uh, less good at the moment for reducing sedentary time.
0: Those messages are really encouraging and the fact that physical activity can be increased through these sorts of initiatives. I wonder just briefly, um, and you mentioned the role of the pedometer uh, being quite important in potentially the success of, of these projects what was sort of kind of the psychology or the sort of the theory that was used to inform uh, the design of these interventions?
1: Ah, another good question. Um, the theory is um, an intriguing one. You know, when, when Fitbits nowadays, uh, many people have them, tell you about your step count, they all focus around the, what has become a public knowledge of 10,000 steps being the correct target. And it turns out that that message really was a little bit of a Japanese advertising motto. In Japanese, the words 10,000 steps make a nice little phrase uh, that was used, but there was no real evidence that 10,000 steps was the right amount for health. And so our theory was... To increase activity in very small amounts, not talk about the 10,000 step target and start from where people were, ask them to self-monitor. And that would be one of the theoretical positions that we've taken, that self-monitoring is an important technique that we learn to regulate our Behavior in this case in walking. So they they had to do a baseline week of how many steps on average did they take um, and doing that as honestly as they could. And then using that figure, they built targets on top of that at very small amounts, like 10 to 15 minutes extra or 1,000 to 1,500 steps extra every other day sort of idea. And they built up gradually. So... The theory is that you you ask people a goal that's very, very far away from them. That is demotivational. And we ask people to achieve a goal that is still a challenge for them. And we've seen that in smart goal setting. It's still a challenge to add 1,000 or 1,500 steps to your daily amount every other day, that's still challenging, but it's achievable. And when they manage that success, then people feel that they can go on and do a little bit more, but there becomes a level that that it's fine. And so when we say to people, uh, if you've achieved the targets you've set, now try to maintain them for a particular period of time. We're not ever increasing and ever increasing and ever increasing so maintenance also became a theoretical uh, position that we wanted to take so self regulation goal setting and maintenance of achieved activity over a period of time was how we started with the the pedometer programming
0: You're also involved in work with people with learning disabilities, older adults, exercise referral, amongst others. How transferable are these messages in terms of self-monitoring and goal setting to promoting physical activity in these groups too?
1: Well, we found that that walking programme works very well almost everywhere. We've certainly achieved very good results of over 2,000 steps a day increase for older adults, uh, men and women over 65, doing that exact same program. We've found very good results with uh, women who are attending breast cancer screening services. Um, They're mostly healthy, but they're taking a step to think about their health, and that's a teachable moment. And when they've been asked to consider increasing their walking, they too can do that. And appeals to them to do it in this way it's not sport you don't need lycra you don't need a a huge amount of effort you need planning to put walking into your everyday life it works there Um, but one place we found it very difficult to transfer is for um, adults with learning disabilities and here we did the exact same program But we were not successful. And one of the reasons we've uh, reflected on is that for many of those adults, they're dependent on a carer. And so they're not able to enact the program just on their own. They need someone to go with them to do that walking. And so, of course, we're now trying to promote walking to the carers who may not be interested in adding walking to their lives and it became a real barrier for them in helping the adults in their care so we need to work hard to find a way around that because adults with learning disabilities have very low levels of activity and therefore are at very high risk of things like diabetes in particular uh, you know and poor mental health so um, we're working on that one still. And that's the only place we've not seen this programme working well.
0: Okay. And building, I guess, from from your response there, what do you think are going to be the important future developments in this area?
1: Well, I think uh, now walking has been accepted as an important aspect of increasing physical activity. So 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. I mean, the first paper written on this topic was 1997, by Morris and Hartman, and they put walking onto the possible map by saying walking is good for health. Many people at that point thought it's not intense enough, it's, it's not going to really stimulate our physiology well enough, but in fact, of course, it does, and we have the evidence for that now. So I think we've got walking uh, clearly in the landscape of a very good method of promoting physical activity at the population level. What I think is next is probably the sitting issue. So um, here's something I often think of and and your students will know of um, the early work of Jeremy Morris, you know, 1953, the start of the whole topic of physical activity for health, perhaps, was his uh, very important study where he compared London bus drivers and their risk of coronary heart disease to London bus conductors and their risk of coronary heart disease. And, of course, at that point, buses were not automated and conductors collected the fares. So they were moving in and out the bus, up and down the stairs of the bus and on their feet for the whole shift, whereas the drivers clearly were sitting behind the wheel. And there was a very clear demonstration that the conductors had much lower risk of coronary heart disease than the drivers and and this actually was possibly the very first study in our field that made physical activity for health an important topic but I often reflect on that and what if Jeremy Morris had said instead sitting all day at work is really bad for your health because that's the same conclusion you can take from that study the drivers were at great risk and so I think we need to focus more on that, that sitting perhaps is an occupational health hazard. Taxi drivers, lorry drivers are in the same situation as those bus drivers. People who now work in call centres, people who are in front of computers all day, by their work. Sitting is probably an occupational health hazard for them. And I think that might become the next topic. So we've got a little bit of an introduction to that going on. Many people are choosing to have standing desks. I think the evidence is still a little bit weak about is that the solution? Uh, You know, we have to judge how long to stand, how long to sit. Moving in and out of the position, I think, is important. Um, We've also got concerns about posture. And uh, when we look at a screen or use a laptop, we're often not in great posture. So our musculoskeletal health, sore backs, Aches and pains, sore necks are becoming more common uh, symptoms of sitting too long. So I think that area of, of how sitting perhaps at occupation, perhaps in our own houses, is not good for our health. And here I'm not so much concerned about the evidence that it links to mortality, I'm concerned a lot more about the immediate effects of that, uh, tired eyes, low mood, feeling loss of energy, poor posture, sore back, not feeling great because you've been sitting down for hours on end and you're compelled to do that uh, by your work. So I think that's under-researched and is the next topic about how we need our bodies to... Move about to have optimal performance, you know, and that's where I started with the somato-psychic rationale. We, our bodies are critical to performing well in everyday life.
0: Nanette, that's amazing. That seems a lovely way to to kind of finish the interview. Before we do, I just have one final question for you. If if you could offer students one piece of advice. Uh, to help them on their journey becoming a sport and exercise or sport or exercise psychologist, what would that be?
1: Yes. Another, uh, another good question. Um, I think here my advice is something about keeping a balance in that early training between the very, very appealing world of performance-related psychology. And most of us come to this field because we've got a background in sport and competitive sport. And the chance to work with elite athletes and teams is very, very appealing. So I understand that. But I think in early training, keep a balance between that appealing part, of performance-related psychology, And learn everything you can about the health-related part of psychology. Um, And I think every course should include both exercise and sport. Now, I wouldn't even use the word exercise. I've argued elsewhere it should be called physical activity psychology because exercise is a very particular thing. But, you know, we've got the title and we kind of know what it means, but learn everything you can about how psychology can impact on public health via promotion of activity. And you may not find that you want to use that right away, but many people after some performance-related work uh, suddenly find that there are more opportunities, there's certainly more grants available, there's certainly uh, lots of people to work with, in this other area of promoting physical activity for health. So my advice is not to just do performance psychology, even though that's your passion, to learn the other part, because later you might come to it and love
0: it also. Nanette, thank you so much. That's been really, really useful and really insightful. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you, Dan. I enjoyed that very much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you join me again next time for the next episode of the Participation and Performance Podcast. This episode was created, presented and produced by Dr. Dan Brown with production assistance from Tom Langston. The music used in this episode is Unity by Kevin MacLeod. All copyright information can be found in the show notes.